On location in the Holy Land, David Taverner from UCB travels with Bible teacher and church pastor Mike Beaumont to trace the life of Jesus then and now. In the last conversation, we were talking about the call of Jesus on some of the disciples, some of those apostles, Peter in particular we focused on, and you reminded us of some of the others that made up the Twelve. His reach is the subject of our conversation. What, what have you got in mind, Mike? <laughs> what we're going to be looking at here is how Jesus had this amazing ability to reach to people on the margins of society. He didn't just go for the easy catch. He didn't just go for the good people and the nice people uh, of whom the scribes and Pharisees, of course, saw themselves as the leading examples. His heart and his passion were for what he so often called the lost, those on the edges of society, those that society had discarded and despised. And he wanted them to know, you are never discarded, never despised, where God is concerned. We're in Capernaum just at the moment, and we were remembering in a previous conversation about the kind of cross-section of society there would have been. So there would have been the full range, the full spectrum. Yeah, remember we've said... Capernaum was predominantly a Jewish town, so it would have been predominantly Jewish, fairly wealthy, but it's also a trading centre. There's lots of fishing goes on from and around here as well. Fishermen weren't particularly wealthy. Um, so there would have been a cross-section of Jewish society, but because the Via Maris that we've referred to previously, that great trade route that ran from Egypt right up the coast across the Jezreel Valley, across here to Galilee and up through Capernaum and then north to Damascus and all regions beyond, huge amounts of trade passed right through here. And with that, of course, all sorts of people from all sorts of background. So the people that Jesus reached out to who you are describing as outsiders, they were outsiders in society, were they? They were <laughs> kind of rejected by society. Yeah, very much so. And in fact, as an example, we're going to look at one particular individual who was based right here where we are in Capernaum, um, who was a classic example of someone who was rejected by the vast bulk of society in Jesus's day. What was his name? It's Matthew or Levi, as he's also called. And uh, he was a tax collector, not only a tax collector, but a chief tax collector. Why was he despised? Because tax collectors were really seen as collaborators with Rome. The way Rome got its taxes and its money was quite simply to sell a particular region to the highest bidder. And then once you had bid to pay all the taxes for that region, you were then allowed to raise the taxes from the people in that region with the help of a Roman soldier with a sword in his hand to encourage everyone to pay their taxes. But the tax collectors were hated because they used to add things on top, double tax, double dip, and they were really frauds. They'd then pay their share to Rome, but they kept all the cream at the top of it. So not only were they frauders of God's own people, these were Jews and they were defrauding fellow Jews. They were seen as collaborators because they were working for the hated Roman invaders. So tax collectors were among the most despised of the despised in Jewish culture in Jesus's day. So bribery and extortion was 
clearly commonplace. And in this place, Capernaum, where there would have been wealthy people and a lot of trade going on, Levi would have been doing okay. Oh, he would have been doing very nicely, thank you. Uh, I said that he was a chief tax collector. In other words, he had tax collectors underneath him. So not only was he taking the cream, he was taking a cut of their cream as well. And Capernaum was right on the border between two geographical territories, the territory of Galilee that was ruled by Herod Antipas and the territory of Trachonitis that was ruled by Herod Philip. So the border ran right here at Capernaum. So there were taxes every time some goods or people went from one region to another. So this was a very, very lucrative place to be a taxman and particularly a senior taxman. So Matthew, Levi, to use his other name, um, would have been doing very nicely indeed. He would have had a very nice home here. He would have been very wealthy. He would have had the best of everything. He really was doing very, very well for himself in life. So where is Simon and Andrew the fisherman right here on the Sea of Galilee who gave up their livelihoods? Was Levi going to be a, a more of a tough cookie? <laughs> well, why don't we read the story and, and see what happens? Because, do you know what? I don't think anyone's a more tough cookie than another when Jesus gets to work. And all of us, if we're serious about Jesus, come to points where we have to give up things to follow him. For Peter and some of his fellow fishermen, they had to give up their fishing business. For Matthew... He had to give up this lucrative tax farming that he was running. So there's always something to give up. It's a question of what. So why don't we read the story? And do you know what? What better place to read it than in his own gospel? The gospel of Matthew was written by this guy that we're looking at today, Matthew the tax collector, which explains why Matthew's is the most ordered and orderly of the gospels why things are done in fives or in lists. Why? Because that's how he thought, that's how he'd been trained as a tax collector. But does he paint himself in a good light? Well, let's see what he says. Matthew 9, 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. Now, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, so Matthew's now said, come on, let's go back home and have some supper together. Many tax collectors and sinners, in inverted commas, in other words, that's a reference to the people who didn't keep all the rules and rituals that the rabbis had taught you should and that the Pharisees were so punctilious in obeying. That's how they looked down on everyone else as mere sinners, the riffraff who aren't religious like we are. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And on hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the health you need a doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I've not come to call the righteous but sinners. Okay, how did he see himself? He certainly doesn't paint himself. You know, I was there and I was the lead one. He's very honest about himself. He's very honest that before he followed Jesus, he was a chief tax collector. 
It's a code for saying, I was a cheat. I used to rob my own people. He's very clear there that when Jesus came, he came to call not the righteous, but sinners. He's putting himself among that category. So we're certainly not getting a gilded lily picture of Matthew in his own gospel. And his response to Jesus sounds instant. It does, doesn't it? And we've talked in a previous episode of how Peter's response looked instant, but actually it seemed like there was a, a backstory to it. Was there a backstory here? I don't know. Without a doubt, Matthew sitting there on this busy road at his tax collector's booth would at the very least have heard all the stories about Jesus. Jesus was the buzz of this Capernaum area. So he would at the very least have heard stories of what he'd been teaching, what he'd been saying. Maybe he'd heard some of his teaching. We simply don't know. But there was something about Jesus' call that day that got him. I suspect maybe he had heard other things because it does sound very quick. You know, there's no what or why or what you're supposed to respond to. So I suspect there was some back knowledge, but a very, very quick response when it came. And of course, for him, a response that would cost him because he was a very, very wealthy man. And, uh, well, Jesus once said it's very hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. You also seem to have quite a small circle of friends. If this banquet, this meal together, was just with his fellow tax collectors. Yeah, absolutely. Why? Because he very much was the outsider. You know, we're, we're thinking in this episode of Jesus's reach. So really the only people that he can invite to this banquet with Jesus is fellow tax collectors and people who are dismissed as sinners. So these are very much the outcasts of society, the marginalised of society. You know, it's possible to be marginalised not just by our poverty, our wealth can marginalise us sometimes. What we do or who we are can marginalise us in society. And that meal that he invites Jesus to with such a small circle of like-minded friends shows that, yeah, he very much had been marginalised. He was the outsider and yet the reach of Jesus can always reach out to those who are on the edge, those who are outside. What sort of meal would that have been that he invited Jesus to? Well, if we read at Luke's account of that gospel, it underlines it. It says, then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. So, you know, a, a banquet. This is not just a, hey, why don't you come home for cheese and crackers? It's late. This is a banquet. He gives to Jesus the very best that his money allows him to give. And, you know, and that's what we're all called to, to give to Jesus our very best. It may not be money, but in terms of attitude and heart and serving and spirit, he does what all of us should be doing, giving our best to Jesus. And he gave the best that he could that day. So this same Matthew, Levi, becomes part of the, the twelve. It's already quite a mixture of characters. Whoa, can you imagine some of the conversations on that route? Now, think, these fishermen. Now, we know that Herod Antipas taxed fishermen in this area. So he is definitely not going to be liked because every fish that they bring out of that lake is going to be taxed. And this is the guy who's taxed them. This is the guy who's bled them through the nose. This is the guy who has cheated them 
day after day after day. And Jesus comes along and puts them next to one another. I mean, imagine some of the conversations that must have gone on in those early days between Matthew and Peter. I'm not sure they would have even walked together. But you know, this is what Jesus does. He takes people from all parts of society, all stratas of society, all backgrounds in society, and pulls them together in his church. If I just think of my own church, we've got such a variety, a mixture as so many churches do. We've got people who are professors in university. We've got people who are living on just state benefits and all sorts of range in between. And the wonderful thing is to see when they come together in Jesus, them enjoying and appreciating one another, not on the basis of where they come in the social ranking, but in the fact that they are simply brothers and sisters in Christ and part of the same family. And Matthew and Peter and the others would have to learn that, but I'll tell you what, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall in those early days when Jesus started to get them together and said, we're going to learn to do life together, guys. You see, in church life today, I wish church was made up of people like me, that thought <laughs> like me and all the rest of it. Yeah, it would be a lot easier, wouldn't it? Except I think church should be more of people like me, David, rather than you. Um, but we all know what that means, don't we? It, it would be so nice to have people who think like us, who vote like us, whose jobs are like us, whose interests are like us, you know, who are interested in having just this much Bible study and not any more, please, and no more than X minutes of singing on a Sunday, please. But here's the wonder of the church and the wonder of the gospel. Jesus takes people from all sorts of backgrounds and puts them together and says, here's my gift to you. You're going to learn how to love one another. And the very fact that we like different things and have come from different backgrounds will at times cause us to chafe against one another, if we're honest. And that's the moment when Jesus says, aha, right, what are you going to do now? Who are you going to call to? And this is the wonder of the church, that Jesus can take people from such varied backgrounds and shapers. Because believe it or not, there are corners on David Taverner's life that need rubbing off. And this is even harder to believe, but there are corners on Mike <laughs> Beaumont's life that need rubbing off as well. And we are God's gifts to one another to do that. Have you reflected on what it would have been like then for those 12 in particular? to rub shoulders with each other, Matthew, Simon, Andrew, to learn from each other as well as to learn from Jesus? I think at the beginning it would have been impossible. I think they would have resented it. I think they would have made, thought Jesus had made a mistake at the beginning. I think people like Peter, who was always very quick to say what he thought, uh, would have probably let Jesus know what he thought about his choice and that he'd made a mistake. After all, you know, he thought Jesus had made a mistake about promising to go to the cross, so he would certainly not be slow to say this. And a bit of that's imagination, but I, I think it's based on what we know of their character in the Gospels, but also what we know of life. I'm sure there would have been this chafing, but the chafing was the gift of Jesus. You know, anyone listening to this, you're in church at the moment and you're chafing a bit with someone, you've had a bit of a run-in with someone, don't back off, don't get resentful. That's the gift of Jesus to you, to help change your heart, to change your attitude, to soften you, to teach you how to forgive. A number of people I've met over the years who've 
left church because they, quote, got hurt. Well, I feel like saying I never do, but grow up. That's what life is about. That's what the church is there for, to help you rub things off one another, but to bring in the oil of the Holy Spirit to grease the wheels as they turn against one another and to help refine one another through the Holy Spirit into the people that Jesus is calling all of us to be. Clearly, Matthew or Levi wasn't the only outcast, as it were, then. No, I mean, read the Gospels and you'll find all sorts of other outcasts, marginalised people who responded to his call and who he reached out to. By the way, his reaching out, like we saw in that account of his call to Matthew, was often resisted by the religious folk. Funny, isn't it? Religious folk can't cope sometimes with what Jesus wants to do and who he wants to reach out to. But, I mean, quickly, who were some of those who in the culture at the time would have been seen as on the edges? Well, strange as it might seem, women. You know, women weren't allowed to be taught by the rabbis. Here we are near the synagogue in Capernaum. And we said in a previous episode that the men had the big hall, the women had the hall next door. So women were marginalised, and yet Jesus spent as much time sometimes with the women as with men. Women become some of his greatest followers and supporters. Then to use a completely different example, uh, lepers, those who had skin diseases. Now, the skin diseases referred to there are much wider than what we would call modern leprosy. But having a skin disease made you, according to the Jewish law, unclean. That meant you weren't allowed to mix with God's people. You weren't allowed to come into the synagogue. You certainly weren't allowed to go to the temple. And we've probably all seen those movies where people have you know, shouted, unclean, unclean, to warn the religious and the pure to keep well away from them so they didn't become defiled. And what do we find Jesus doing again and again? reaching out to people like the guy who was known as Simon the leper, became a follower of Jesus, still seemed to keep that tag for some reason. It seems he'd been known as that. And didn't Jesus meet him in his home as well, the yeah. home of a leper? Absolutely. You would not dream of doing that, certainly not if you were a rabbi. But Jesus reaches out to people like that. Think of the Roman centurion. Here in Capernaum, this synagogue so close by, was built at the expense of the local Roman centurion who was in charge of the garrison that was stationed here. And Jesus reaches out to him. The guy begs him to heal his servant. And Jesus is happy to include him. There's that story of the, the Syrophoenician woman who comes to him and, and begs for him to heal his daughter. And Jesus says this strange thing at first. You know, it's not right to give food on the table. Um, to the dogs. Wow, my goodness, that sounds anything but inclusive, doesn't it? And then she said, yeah, Lord, but even dogs under the table eat the crumbs that drop down. And you can imagine a smile coming on Jesus's face and thinking, you got me. That's what I was looking for. Faith that doesn't give in, faith that presses through. I tell you, go, your child is healed. So all sorts of people who in those days, that one an example of a Gentile, as well as a woman, the Roman centurion, lepers, tax collectors, quotes unquote, sinners, people who didn't keep all the religious laws. Again and again we find in the Gospels Jesus reaching out to these people on the edges. And for me I find that a real challenge. 
Because I think, you know, I think most of our churches today, we end up reaching out to those that we're comfortable with. To use your illustration earlier, to those that we like. But if we're going to be authentic followers of Jesus and authentic to the gospel, we really need to have a strategy for how are we going to reach out to those on the edge of life today, those of whom society says there's no place for you. Keep to the edge. You don't belong. Our churches need to be warm and welcoming places. Not that people come in to stay as they are, but they come in to be welcomed and to start that journey of transformation with us into the likeness of Jesus. It sounded to me from that sort of list you were including there that Jesus didn't just have sort of a passing acquaintance with these people. He kept company with them. Oh, that's a really good point. Um, because it wasn't like an evangelistic mission. Right, quick, let's do the sortie to go and help the poor. Or uh, let's go and do tax collectors today. He actually did love spending time with them, love um, doing life with them. Uh, and tax collectors seemed to be in particular one group that he delighted in, in, in going to their home and spending time with them. They, they seemed to be so open, so hospitable to him. I suspect it was because everybody else rejected them and they'd heard this story of this man who didn't rejected them, actually who loved them, who loved the lost and who was ready to welcome them in. And Jesus just loved spending time with them, just didn't see them as mere evangelistic fodder. It also sounds as if Jesus had his eyes open to everyone and, and could see those who were outcast in a way that perhaps do we see those who are outcast in our world today? I think we probably see that we, those that we want to see. But there are probably an awful lot right on the doorstep of our church who are more marginalised than we think they are. You know, and frankly, the world is often very good at identifying those and showing more care and compassion for them in their own way than we might be, and I find that a, a great provocation. So we absolutely need to learn how to have our eyes open to those around us, just like Jesus did. How did Jesus sort of make his point about this? <laughs> um, well, he did it, he lived it out, but he also taught it. Um, some of his parables are about how God goes out to look for those who are lost. I mean, one of my favourite chapters in Luke's Gospel is Luke chapter 15, where Jesus gathers together um, three stories about the lost. There's the parable of the lost sheep, a well-known one where Jesus leaves the 99 that he's got. You know, surely couldn't he be happy with 99? It's only one that he's lost. No, no, God's not like that. He goes out and leaves the 99 to find the one. There's the parable of the lost coin, um, the woman who goes looking for this one coin that she's lost. It was perhaps a coin from her dowry, might have been from the necklace around her neck. It was a, a really expensive silver coin. And she doesn't settle for thinking, oh, I've got nine, that'll be all right. She goes on one of those house cleanings and is determined to find what's lost that's what God is like Jesus said and then of course there's that really well-known parable the parable of the lost son often called the parable of the prodigal son the son who this time just doesn't get lost but who makes a deliberate choice 
to wander away from his father. And the whole point of the story is he may have made a deliberate choice to go from father, but father is still looking, still waiting, and he's still ready to run out there to welcome him and meet him when he comes back. And, you know, maybe some folk listening to this today made a choice months, years ago, to walk away from God. And every so often there's that little stirring in your heart thinking, I wonder, is God still there? Does God still care about me? Oh, yes, I tell you. Go and read that story in Luke 15 for yourself because that is what God is like to you, like a father waiting at the gate, looking for the returning son. And when he comes, he runs out to meet you. He puts a robe on your shoulders and a ring on your finger and he throws a party for you. Interestingly, that story ends with the older brother who, when he hears his younger wastrel brother has come home and dad's thrown a party for him, can't rejoice. And he says to his dad, he won't go into the party, he refuses to go in, which was a huge slight in those days culturally. Dad has to come out to him. And he says, come in, please, son. Why should I come home to this? You know, all my life I've slogged away for you and you never so much as gave me a young goat to have for a party with my friends. Now this wastrel son comes home and you throw this feast for him. And he says, son, all that I have is yours. It's always been yours. How can we not rejoice? And of course, Jesus there was putting his finger on these religious people like the scribes and Pharisees who refused to rejoice when these lost and marginalized that Jesus had reached out to were being found and were being brought home. All these individuals that you've mentioned that felt outcast, it comes back, does it, to how you feel about yourself and the fact that Jesus valued them. How does Jesus value us, especially if we feel somehow outcast? Yeah, do you know what? The Bible's very clear that each of us is made in the image of God. That's something that's fundamental that goes back to Genesis and the account of creation. We're all made in the image of God. We all reflect something of God. We all have something of God's fingerprint in us. And therefore, we are precious to God, no matter how we might feel at any point in our life. And let's face it, all of us have points when we feel low about ourselves, when we are disappointed in ourselves, in something we've done or something we've not done. Some people get incredibly low about that to the point of being utterly depressed about it. But I would say, don't trust what you feel about yourself. Go back to the Bible and see what the Bible says about you. You are loved by God. You are made in his image. And that instantly means you're of value. The New Testament tells us that God so loved the world that he gave his only son for us, that when we believe in him, we shouldn't perish, but have everlasting life. Everlasting life just doesn't mean life in the future when we go to heaven. The literal meaning is life of God's kingdom starting now and continuing and never ending. God loved each of us. No matter what we think about ourselves, he looks at us and sees value and beauty, potential. And he loved us enough that 2,000 years ago, he sent this man, his son Jesus, into this world, not just to teach us, but to die on the cross to be our saviour. Look at the cross. Now that's how much you're worth to God. Enough that he sent his son to die for you. And as you believe in him, you start a whole new life, the past forgiven and forgotten. And you start this wonderful adventure with Jesus 
that Matthew started right here in Capernaum all those years ago. Which, on a day like today, the sun beating down is a beautiful place to be, and the sea just very close to where we are. As we finish our conversation, the sound of visitors behind us enjoying looking around themselves from around the world, I'm sure. Just pray for us, Mike, as we think of this point about the way Jesus reached out to everyone. Lord Jesus, thank you that your arm is not short. It is very, very long. There is nowhere it can't reach. There is no one it can't reach. No matter how far we might feel from you, no matter how far others tell us we are from you, no matter what we have done in life that would put a barrier between us and you, thank you, you can still reach us. And all you ask is that we respond to you and say, yes, Lord, here I am. I'm going to start the adventure of following you like Matthew did that day. Help us to have the courage to say yes to your reach and help all of us to be those who in turn reach out to others, ignoring no one but including everyone. For that's why you came, Lord. So help us to be part of that, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Mike Beaumont and David Taverner in the Holy Land, tracing the life of Jesus then and now. Check out the UCB website for the free episode guide with photos, Bible references and background information. Go to ucb.co.uk forward slash Jesus then and now. And you can hear more 30 minute conversations with Mike and David talking about the Bible on the UCB player app. Under podcasts, just select Bible books, Bible biogs or Bible surprises. Bible surprises.